You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the program. My name is Chris Spangle. Thank you so much for being with me here today. As you heard on yesterday's, yesterday's episode, excuse me, we had a very calm, rational, reasoned discussion from different viewpoints on abortion. I know it was a miracle. Um, and I wanted to have on uh, Alexa- Alexander DeSanctis. I've already messed it up. Alexander DeSanctis, uh, who I used to listen to her on a podcast with... Um, with uh, a, a National Review podcast, a National Review contributor. So excited to talk to her, and I have uh, a lot of respect for her ability to articulate uh, the pro-life vision from the conservative, from the pro-life side. She's the author of a new book called Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Yeah, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So the premise of the book is that the last 50 years of abortion and since Roe v. Wade has not been a positive for America. You wouldn't know that if you were reading your timeline or watching the news. Can you give us just a couple arguments in the in the book? Why is abortion harmful to society overall, not just to obviously, you know, the fetus? Sure. Yeah, that, that's a great question. That's sort of the genesis of the book, right? The pro-life movement, I think, is very good at talking about the unborn child and the the unjust lethal harm to the unborn child involved in abortion. That's obviously an essential case. Um, but we, what Ryan, my co-author, and I wanted to do is kind of equip uh, people who already agree with us, you know, hopefully the book's accessible to those who don't as well, but mainly to equip pro-lifers with a, a kind of more robust case that goes beyond the harm to the unborn child. And the foundation of the case is, look, if it is true that this is lethal violence against most innocent, vulnerable human beings among us, um, how could it it be possible that this wouldn't harm all of us, right? If it's legal and acceptable in our society to kill, to intentionally kill innocent human beings, that must harm all of us in various ways, Um, just the the fact of that evil taking place. Um, So we go through kind of not even all the harms, but we catalog a great deal of them, including uh, the harms to women and the family, uh, the way that Roe v. Wade and the decision um, the justices made in 1973 harmed our legal system, and then downstream from that, the way that harmed our politics, where our culture and medical system have been affected. Basically, everything you can think of has has become worse because of abortion, and it's basically impossible, in my view, to identify anything that abortion has uh, made better. Yeah, so we've broken it out in our discussion yesterday from the moral perspective and the legal perspective. And when you're talking to somebody who's pro-choice or pro-life to make it black or white, uh, we're starting from very different places, it seems like. You know, in in our Facebook group, you know, when does your right to manage women's health care begin? And then I'm like, but the discussion for me begins, when is it acceptable to kill a child? Um, I, I would imagine you believe that life starts at conception and you know, the, from a moral perspective, I, I mean, just start there. Like, where do you believe life begins and when, if ever, is it acceptable for an abortion to take place? Sure. Yeah. So this is um, the first chapter of the book. We kind of lay out the the harm to the unborn child. And the way we, Ryan and I, um, position it is we, we talk about the three theses. Um, the first is the biological thesis. And so this is just the the scientific fact that a a new, unique, distinct living human being uh, comes into being at the moment of conception. Uh, We know 
every embryologist in the world, whether or not they're pro-abortion, will affirm that there's a unique human being here. Um, so we start from that basic fact. There are a lot of people who deny this, people who want to call it a clump of cells. It's very clearly a distinct developing human being um, and not a potential human being, but a human being with potential. Uh, and so from that point, that kind of underlying foundation, we move on to our moral thesis, which is um, the the belief or the, in our view, the, the proper moral vision is one that affirms the dignity, value, and moral worth of all human beings. Um, in other words, all human beings are persons. There's no distinction between uh, a human person and a human being. All human beings are persons with moral worth. Um, and we talk a bit about, uh, you know, how how damaging it is to have a different view, right? That it, it uh, encompasses other classes of human beings or dehumanizes other classes of human beings when you try to draw lines about who counts as a person. Um, and then finally, we talk about our political thesis, which I think you alluded to, legally speaking. Um, and that's, that's the idea that uh, all just governments exist at the very least to protect um, all human, innocent human beings from lethal, lethal violence. Especially those who are the most vulnerable. Well, know. certainly. And certainly, I mean, the, the ones who are most innocent, right? We could argue about the death penalty, for example, or other um, other instances. But these are quite literally the most innocent human beings among us and the most dependent, as you point out. Yes. So we'll we'll talk about the effect of Roe v. Wade and the legality of it. But, you know, in talking to some of my more liberal friends who are women, they're 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 concerned about Republicans regulating their bodies and their health care, uh, which after the last eight years, I don't <laughs> I don't really trust Republicans to make a lot of responsible decisions. I mean, so when when you see things like um, I mean, I don't know where you come down on some of the Texas stuff, you know, the like the bounty hunter, you know, and, you know, or making people get death certificates for miscarriages, you start to see the privacy argument creep in. And this is where a lot of libertarians in my audience come down and say, well, what about the privacy rights of women and the interference of doctors between them and their health care? Because the rubber meeting the road in state laws now, I, 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 don't, I don't know how that's going to play out. That is what makes a lot of libertarians nervous. So can you give me your view on that? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly room to debate what the most prudent or practical or just policies are when it comes to regulating abortion. Uh, but I think it's important to make the distinction that uh, prohibiting abortion is not a regulation either of women's bodies or women's health care, right? We're talking about a procedure that's never medically necessary um, and a procedure that intentionally ends the life of a human being who's developing inside the mother, right? This is not about her body. Um, it, it takes place in her body, certainly, uh, but it's not actually a right over her own body. This is a right but the, the claim of abortion rights activists or proponents is that uh, the mother's the, the fact that the child is inside the mother gives her a right to kill that child or to get rid of that child. Uh, but we're not talking about a right to her to control her own body. Of course, Ryan and I and all pro-lifers believe that women should have autonomy over their own bodies and their own health care decisions. The debate is over whether there's another body involved, right, and, and what rights that body has, that human being has, and whether this is health care, which it's not. Abortion is not health care. Um, so there, there are more specific, um, you know, debates we could get into about how that plays out in terms of policy. But in my view, a good pro-life law um, and no pro-life law that I'm aware of would actually, you know, regulate or, or punish women for having a miscarriage. Uh, they wouldn't make it impossible to get essential health care, like care for an ectopic pregnancy. None of that has to do with abortion, right? And abortion is an intentional killing of a, a living human being inside the mother. And so this should not 
properly legislated touch on women's health care rights at all. So I saw a story and I, I see stories all the time. There's stuff from nurses that end up being completely fake and taken down. But uh, there was a 10 year old girl who was a victim of rape and now she's being forced to carry her baby to term. How, how does the pro-life movement respond to that? Yeah, I mean, that's obviously the hardest the hardest case to talk about, right? That's um, horrible, a horrible violation of that girl's dignity and, and um, freedom. Of course, we should always condemn rape. Um, but the response, I think, of, of all pro-lifers is it doesn't actually solve that young girl's problem to then turn around and enact violence on her child, as difficult as it is, of course, for her to be in that situation. And her rapist should be, you know, caught, should be given due, due process, but punished with the full extent of the law if he's deemed guilty. Um, but it doesn't actually solve the problem to then turn around and commit violence against her own child. It doesn't make her life any better. And it certainly is not just to the child who didn't do anything wrong. So what, uh, you, you know, the, I guess I, I want to ask about the harm to women. That's the sec, I think the second chapter of the book where you talk about how abortion actually harms women and their, their rights. Uh, touch more on that. What was the central thesis of that chapter? Sure. Yeah. So I think this is really important because I think the best argument for abortion is the claim that that women need abortion, um, that women are better off if we have access to abortion. And this is the, the claim the Supreme Court has made in the past, right, that women rely on the right to abortion. So um, I think it's really important to know how to respond to it. Uh, so we make two main points in this chapter. The first is uh, the harm of abortion to women who have abortions. And this is certainly not true of all women, uh, but certainly many more women than abortion supporters tend to acknowledge suffer either physical or psychological complications. So that could be anything from hemorrhaging to, you know, side effects of a chemical abortion administered at home, uh, long-term physical complications like, uh, you know, difficulties in future pregnancies, and then psychological side effects. So, uh, you know, the best data suggests that some, you know, fairly significant number of women who have abortions experience elevated rates of uh, depression, anxiety, drug and alcohol abuse, even suicide um, after having had an abortion. And these women are really ignored and sidelined, um, frankly, by most abortion supporters. But then secondly, we make the case that that abortion actually harms all women, even those who don't have abortions. Um, and what we mean is abortion takes the male body as the norm, right? The, the logic of abortion suggests that there's something abnormal or defective or, or problematic about the fact that women become pregnant, at least some of the time. And it, it takes as a given that both men and women should be able to have sex and walk away with no consequences or responsibility. And because men are able to do that as a result of their biology, abortion is the solution for women, right? If women want to walk away the way men can, they just get an abortion and that takes care of it. But the problem is that abortion is an act of lethal violence against their own child. And so women are in this position where in order to be free and equal like men, they're actually being asked to participate in violence and to treat their own child like an enemy. Um, and so our argument is this is not actually good for women. This is a kind of cop-out fake solution that that fails to present actual solutions to the problems and, and lack of equality that women face. So let's talk about the legal side, because Roe v. Wade is seen, it's revered on, on the pro-choice uh, side. It's given us this constitutional right to abortion. What was Roe v. Wade and how did it change how the government operates in your view? Yeah, I mean, it was essentially just this naked power grab by the Supreme Court. We know and we get into this a bit in the book, um, the history of how this this case was decided. Some number of justices on the Supreme Court 
just wanted to legalize abortion for their own kind of moral and political reasons. Um, and so they're, the logic in Roe is essentially them working backwards and saying, we want to make abortion legal for the entire country. We want to end the abortion debate before it begins. And so let's just kind of come up with some kind of justification for it. And that's why you got this decision where for 50 years, uh, you know, the court invented essentially a, a right to abortion that exists nowhere in the text, the history, the tradition of our founding document. Um, and so they, they basically just ripped this issue out of the hands of the American people and decided it wrong and then imposed that incorrect anti-constitutional reading on the entire country. And then the effects of that have been um, quite devastating for our legal system. So what does Dobbs do? How does it change it? Yeah, it's, it's definitely worth reading to kind of understand more of, of what I was just alluding to. But basically, it says there was never any right to abortion in the Constitution to begin with. This was just a, a wrong, made up reading of the Constitution that was you know committed essentially for political reasons. It was a, a legislative uh, action cloaked as a judicial opinion. Um, and now we're sending the issue back to the people and to the states and where this should be legislated. Uh so where do you think a lot of these states will rule? I mean, I think it's obvious we sort of break things down into red and blue states, but, you know, Indiana is a red state with a purple streak, for instance. Um, do you have insight into where things might go in terms of some of these state legislatures? Yeah, I think we um, the best way to, to understand it is there's kind of three buckets of states, so to speak. One is states that already have some kind of law on the books that has already taken effect or will shortly take effect um, prohibiting nearly all abortions, of course, with exceptions, if a mother's life is at risk. Um, and those states probably are going to stay that way, I would imagine. You know, very pro-life states that have been trying to protect unborn children for the past 50 years finally can do so. Um, then on the other end of the spectrum, there's a handful of very abortion-friendly states, you know, California, New York, um, Vermont, places where they've already passed laws declaring abortion to be a fundamental right, um, where they have taxpayer-funded abortion essentially for any reason, um, those states probably are going to stay like that, at least unless and until there's a, a federal um, law or a, a Supreme Court ruling making that impossible. And then uh, in the middle, there's this kind of bucket of states that are up for grabs, right, where people are a lot more pro-life than the Democratic Party is. They certainly want more limits on abortion than they currently have, but they're not at the you know prohibit all abortion stage. And so I think that's where the the big the space to watch is right now. Are they going to have 15-week pr um, protections for unborn children? Is it going to be heartbeat bills? Where these states are going to come down, I think, is up for debate. So can you talk about heartbeat bills? Because I've heard the criticism is that it's it's hard to detect the heartbeat and sometimes it's too late. Or or what what is some of the criticism in your defense of heartbeat bills, if that's in fact what I, I, I imagine? Do you favor that? Do you not favor that? Where do you come down on that personally? Yeah, I mean, before Roe was overturned, I was very much in favor of heartbeat bills because I think they're a great um, tool to talk about abortion. I think it's helpful to the American people to hear about the fact that an unborn child has a heartbeat, you know, as early as six weeks into pregnancy. Um, I think it's usually detectable between six and eight weeks gestation. And what's so interesting about this, by the way, I think we point this out in the book, is that the, the unborn child's heartbeat in a pregnancy that's wanted is always taken as a sign, an important marker of health. And so if a doctor doesn't hear a heartbeat early in pregnancy when the mother wants to carry the pregnancy to term, uh, that's considered to be a bad sign, right? It's a, a bad sign for the, the healthy development of the child. Um, and so basically the pro-life movement has been using these laws to say, look, uh, there's another human being here and let's talk about that before the laws could ever take effect, right? None of these have ever taken effect. 
because Roe is in place. After Roe, I think they're still helpful messaging wise, but they're not really that different from a total ban on abortion. Um, so I do still, I support them. I think they, they're fine. They're not the ideal, um, but I, I think they're kind of an important piece of the, the messaging strategy. So I've, I've seen some people float the idea of the equivalent of slave fugitive laws um, when it comes to the pills, because I was surprised to learn that a lot of abortions are now done by pill and it's not necessarily the, you know, the forceps. We won't get into all that. Um, how, how will red states and blue states and the federal government and interstate commerce and their ability to regulate? How do you think that'll play out when it comes to abortion pills? Yeah, it's a really important question. And, um, you know, according to the, the most recent estimates, more than half of all abortions in the U.S. are chemical abortions. So via the abortion pill. Um, and as you point out, this really is going to be the new frontier of the abortion debate. Um, even in states where abortion is illegal, people can still get um, abortion pills via the mail because it's now legal to get uh, an abortion pill without seeing a doctor in person, which is very dangerous for women's health, I would like to add. Uh, but that's legal. And so I think that will be kind of how how pro-lifers try to regulate that and legislate that is is very much up for debate. Um, my personal view, I think that Congress has the, the ability to legislate on this, whether under the Interstate Commerce Act or a correct understanding of the 14th Amendment. Uh, but I think we're a long way from consensus on that. So it probably will take some time. And, and this will be the main way people get abortions going forward. Yeah, I mean, I talked to my senator about bringing Ukrainian orphans here, and they can't agree on that. So uh, <laughs> they can't really do much. I mean, I, I could see, though, that that's where the privacy argument comes in, because how are you going to know what I'm having shipped to my house unless you go full Anthony Comstock? If you don't get that, Google it. I mean, is there is that just sort of an evil to live with or how far do you think um, how far would you be willing to go? And then how far do you think other people are willing to go on investigating that? Yeah. I mean, I think that the idea basically is that you would regulate it at the, the provision end, right? So you would get rid of telemedicine um, abortion consultation. Like you wouldn't allow these drugs to be transported by mail. And then I think that the most effective abortion laws, both before Roe and now, um, never punish the woman, right? Pro-lifers don't advocate punish women, wi punishing women who seek abortions or get abortions. They punish abortionists. And so I think if you had enough laws with teeth that were aimed at, you know, prohibiting the provision of these drugs at, at the abortionist end, um, you would really, that would, that would be very effective and you wouldn't have to get into like searching people's mailboxes or anything like that. Okay. So you don't support like when Jane Roe, for instance, was put in jail in Florida for receiving an abortion. You don't support that. I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, maybe I don't know for a fact if that's true, but according I to a podcast from Slate. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I would have to verify. Maybe it's true, but I don't. I mean, I don't know of any pro-lifers, and I don't support putting women in jail for having an abortion. Okay. Um. So you there's a there, there's an interesting stat from the book that sex trafficking numbers have increased due to the easy access of chemical abortions. Can you expound on that? Yeah, this is a really big point. I'm glad we were able to, to include this in the book. The basic idea is, like I just referenced, it's now um, permissible to get chemical abortion pills via telemedicine. So you could get a, a consultation um, with a doctor and have abortion pills mailed to you without ever seeing him in person. Uh, this is dangerous for plenty of reasons, including if you have an ectopic pregnancy and you don't know about it, and you take chemical abortion pills at home without ever seeing a doctor, uh, that woman is at, at much higher risk for serious complications. But 
setting that aside, um, I think it's pretty obvious how this feeds into and enables sex trafficking. Because if if you're trafficking women, not having to take them to a clinic if they happen to get pregnant um, to get an abortion, just being able to kind of put them on on Zoom with a doctor or whatever the, the portal might be, uh, they don't ever run into anybody who can help them. They don't have any personal interaction where someone could you know, notice something weirds going on or try to assist them, um, get them out of that difficult situation, that, that awful situation. Uh, and, and so the, the pills basically enable these traffickers to keep women um, captive and just sort of deal with pregnancy um, more easily. So I think I've heard in the past that you're Catholic. I'm sorry if I'm assuming your your faith status. You no, are? Yes. You are? Okay. Why? I, I, I've ha- I don't have anybody else to ask this. Why has the Catholic church or Catholics in general been kind of on the front lines of this for so long? What is it about? Is it the networks? What? Why has the, the Catholics, why have they been at the for- forefront of this movement? Yeah, I love that question. I should say Ryan and I are both Catholic, but we're, our book is not, you know, setting the Bible or the Catholic church teaching or anything, although it's very much in accord with our beliefs. Uh, but I think it's mainly because the church has been the most vocal institution for, for uh, millennia now. Um, in defense of innocent human life. And I think there's a real infrastructure there. Obviously, there's dispute. There are some prominent people who identify as Catholics, Joe Biden among them, who are, you know, call themselves personally pro-life, but support abortion throughout pregnancy as a policy matter, which I think is very incoherent. Um, But there's just a a massive infrastructure of Catholics who are uh, formed to understand what human life is, to believe that it it, uh, begins at conception. And then there's just a high motivation, I think, among in those networks uh, to care about this issue. I think many Catholics believe it's the human rights abuse of our time, um, the greatest evil of our time. And I think we just, many of us want to do something about it. So you're like, address the fact that I just see, oh, that the Christians aren't doing anything to help these mothers. They're just trying to impose Handmaid's Tale on society. I don't want to live in a theocracy. Uh, I actually, before you hopped on, was just reading a passage about, you know, addressing that concern that I thought was really interesting. So what would you say to somebody if they saw on their Facebook someone saying, you know, you're just trying to make this uh, a Christian nation and using your own morality to govern other people? Yeah, I think this is really um, one of the main (laughs) arguments I hear a lot. And I think the response is very simple, right? Our entire book doesn't cite the Bible or the catechism or the Catholic church or Christian teaching at all, although it certainly agrees with it. And I think that the main response is, look, all of our laws impose some vision of morality. The question is whether it's good morality or a bad vision or immorality, right? Um, And so the fact that any particular law may or may not comport with the Christian tradition or any other religious tradition doesn't de facto make that a bad law, right? Our, Our laws against theft are in accord with my Christian beliefs, but I'm not imposing my Christian beliefs by saying that we should have laws against theft. And the same is true with abortion. There's no, um, we're not trying to impose a Catholic dictatorship. And in fact, the pro-life movement is made up of people of all faith traditions and no faith tradition. I know many um, atheists who are against abortion and agnostics who are against abortion, because you don't have to be religious to understand that it's immoral to kill other human beings. Yeah, I think early on in the book, you talk about slavery, too. Like, for people who are on the fence, um, you, you'll say it much better than me. I'm a little mushmouth today. Yeah, no, that's fine. We, we do talk about it. And look, the point is, we all know that slavery is wrong now, thankfully, um, in our country. It wasn't always the case. And Christianity is very much opposed to slavery, right? Many religious traditions are. And we're not imposing Christian morality by having a societal consensus 
that slavery is wrong. All of our laws uh, impose some vision of morality, like I said. And the only question is, is it good morality or not? And so the real debate is over whether we believe it's moral uh, to kill some human beings because they're not worthy of life for whatever reason. And so that's the debate we should be having. The debate is not, I think the the point that we're imposing a particular religious tradition is just a sideshow to avoid debating the morality of abortion. Well, and and from a purely libertarian perspective, the non-aggression principle applies to all human lives that have natural rights. Um, Alexander DeSanctis, thanks so much for joining me here on the on the show. The book is available on Amazon. I got it on Kindle. I know it's going to be on Audible very soon. Uh, you work with National Review, which I'm very, very jealous of. Uh, <laughs> uh, make sure you get the book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It's a really good summation of what the pro-life movement believes with a lot of footnotes, a lot of documentation. Thanks so much for being my guest. Yeah, great to be with you. And thank you, listener, for so much for joining me. As always, if you got something out of this one, please share this information with your friends and family. And until next week, we'll see you then.